0: Luke 24 is where we're going to be as we think about the resurrection this morning. On Thursday night of this week, I was um, laying in bed. It was about 10 o'clock. Uh, Sydney and I were kind of winding down for the evening. And uh, my oldest son, our oldest son came in. His name's is Mike. He's nine years old. He came in. And he said, hey, Dad. He said, my brother's asleep. Can we hang out for just a few minutes? And so, you know, I got out of bed and went into the other room, and he and I were hanging out for a few mo- moments. The house is quiet, which is a really rare thing kind of in our in our world, but we're there in this quiet house, and he and I. Are having this moment, and I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments where you're just with somebody that you love so much, it hurts, you know, like your heart's about to explode, you love them so much, and I'm just there, and I'm like, man, God, what a gift to like be in this house and to have these kids and to have Sydney. But I was, I was there with Micah, and I'm like, what a gift this little moment is. And so in the middle of our time together, I looked at him and I asked him a question that Sydney and I ask our kids probably on a daily basis on some form. I looked at Micah, I put my hands on his face and I said, Hey buddy, like do you know how much I love you? Like, do you know how crazy insane in love I am with you? And usually when Sydney and I ask our boys that question, they'll respond with a really kind of simple, you know, they'll roll their eyes, they'll laugh, yeah, we know you love us, we know you think we're amazing, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, they're kids, but they're already like teenagers, you know, like, yeah, we know, we know, we know. But but my son, my nine-year-old son in this moment, he didn't respond like a nine-year-old, he responded more like a 29-year-old. He looked at me and he said, Dad, he said, I know that you love me. He said, I know that. He said, "But I don't know if I will understand it until I'm much older, like you, one day." So it's kind of like an insult and an encouragement, you know. He's like, "He's like until I'm really old one day, like you, and I have my own kids, I won't be able to comprehend it." And it, it was weird, you know. We're here; we were in the middle of Holy Week. I'm having this moment with my son, and he just made that simple statement to me: "I get it, but I don't get it." And I thought, "Man, God, that's me with you." And I don't know if you felt that at all this week, as I thought about the significance of the cross, as I thought about the, the weight of. Uh, like what it is to 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 be sinners that needed God to go to that sort of length to bring me back into the family. As I thought about the the power of the resurrection, I found myself all week just going, "Okay, God, I know You love me, but man, God, I want to know." Like like, and I'm not sure this side of eternity, uh, like if we're gonna ever really understand it apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. And I just kept thinking of Paul's words uh, to the church in Ephesus when he's writing in that letter. He says, guys, I'm praying that the power of the Holy Spirit would help you know how high and how wide and how long and how deep is the love of God for you, and that your life would be rooted in that. So this morning, as we're thinking about the resurrection, I want you to know this is not just some random Christian holiday. We're not just, you know, like getting ourselves all hyped up. I mean, we are literally saying, hey, God, would you anchor us in the significance of your love? Because here's the truth. If you don't hear me say anything else today, no one has ever loved you and no one ever will love you like God has loved you. No one has ever loved you like this. And, and, and the work of God through His Son Jesus to you, to me, to us in, in the midst of Holy Week, it, it's the thing that absolutely changes everything about the human story. You know, earlier this week, I was on a phone call with some pastors and civic leaders from our city. And one of the civic leaders from our city, he was, he was kind of giving us an update on the way that this crisis is affecting our culture. And he made this statement that I've heard so many times over the last several weeks. He said, he said this crisis has the potential to change everything as we know it. This crisis has the potential to change everything. And he was talking about you know, the effects that it could have on the economy, the effects that it could have on our churches and the way that we gather, the effects that it could have on the way that we relate to one another personally. And, and what he was saying was absolutely true on some level. This crisis, this moment that we're in, it, it certainly has the, the possibility to change life as we know it. But as he was sharing that in the midst of that phone call, I found myself continually being drawn back to to what we're celebrating this week, because as followers of Jesus, we're wholeheartedly, or we should be wholeheartedly convinced that the defining moment of human history will not be a crisis. The defining moment of human history is the all-conquering work of Jesus that was displayed not just on the cross, but in the empty tomb. And so there's this moment where he's going, man, something has changed everything. I'm going, yeah, something has changed everything. And that something is not a pandemic. It's not this moment that we're in. The thing that has changed everything is that God loved you so much he was willing to cross any barrier, any pain to bring you back into the family of God, no matter what it cost. And I'm just telling you, as a dad of three boys, I would do whatever it takes on earth to bring my kids back into the house. And Easter is heaven's declaration of just how much God wants you in the family and just what he's gonna do to get you there. And so this morning, just for a few moments, I want us to take our eyes off of the crisis that's around us and to fix our eyes on Jesus and the reality of what he's done and to wrestle with this thing that has changed absolutely everything. I love the way Luke tells the story. I don't know if you've ever read the Bible or read through the Gospels, but we have reason to believe that Luke maybe didn't grow up in a a Christian home, didn't grow up going to church. But at some point, he encountered the good news of Jesus. He was an educated guy from a large city like many of you. And he started investigating the claims of the gospel and the claims of Jesus, and he became increasingly convinced that Jesus was indeed risen. And so, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, he writes the gospel of Luke, and he's telling this story of Jesus. And from the very beginning, Luke is going to make it clear that Jesus is not just a good man. He's not just a prophet or a teacher. He's not just a nice guy going around doing nice things for other people. Jesus was a good man, but he was so much more than that. Luke is going to say he was the God-man. He was the fullness of God in human flesh. And Luke, from the beginning of his book, book to the end is just telling this story of Jesus's unparalleled love, his life, his power, his humility, his strength, his sacrifice. But there's this moment when you get to Luke chapter 23 where all of a sudden the story takes a turn, and because of the moment in human history that we're living in, we all know where the story goes, but the people that were experiencing it in real time, they didn't, they didn't see this coming, even though Jesus had warned them. Jesus, the son of God, he was about 33 years old at the time, and Luke tells the story of him marching into Jerusalem, where on a Sunday, the people welcome him into the city as a king, and less than a week later, they crucify him as a criminal. And for three days, Jesus is dead. And Luke is telling this story, and he says, here's the deal, I'm telling you the story about how a real God came to a real place in a real moment in time because he really loves you and he really did something to change everything. This is not a myth, it's not a fairy tale, this is not some metaphor to help weak people get through tough things. He's saying, no, this is a real historical reality that you have to reckon with if you want to understand what it means to be fully human. And so we pick up on Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Jesus has been dead three days at this point. This is the passage that our family read over us. This is what it says. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared, and they went to the tomb. And so there's this moment right out of the gate. Luke's gonna say, hey, let me tell you, tell you what's unfolding here. Some of Jesus' closest friends, these women, three days after he's been killed, after he's been crucified, they're marching to the graveyard in the early morning hours. Some of the other gospel accounts will tell us while it was still dark, they were going and they were carrying spices with them. And I want you to notice this for several reasons. Um, first, um, Jesus' friends, although he had told them he was gonna be raised from the dead, That miracle was so outside of the scope of their human understanding, these women are going to the tomb that day not expecting a miracle. They're going looking for a funeral. Um, They're going in grief, not out of triumph. They're going there with the spices, because during those days when a person had died, uh, like you would take flowers to a cemetery, you would go to honor a person at their gravesite. But they bring the spices not just to honor Jesus. They would use this to kind of uh, hold in the smell back in those days after a person would die, and they didn't have the technology that we had. And so Luke is saying right out of the the front, hey, even Jesus' closest friends didn't know what to do with the predictions he had made. And so they're going, not looking for a miracle, but for a funeral. And I want you to notice one other thing in verse 1. It's so important to me. Luke says, hey, I'm not making this up. If I was making this up, I wouldn't have told the story this way. You know, during the days of Jesus, women were not allowed to legally testify in court. And so sometimes critics of Christianity go, oh, the, the, the followers of Jesus just made this story up to perpetuate the cause. If they were making this story up, Luke would have never made it up with women being the first witnesses. But Luke is saying, hey, here's the deal. I'm not trying to perpetuate a lie. I'm just telling you what happened. And it's women that showed up first. They're there. They're there at the empty tomb. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, when they got there, they found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. I want you to imagine yourself in this scenario. You go to the graveyard to, to pay honor to somebody you love. You go to uh, to pay honor to your grandmother that's passed away. And just imagine, you show up there in the early morning hours. It's still dark. I don't know why you're in a cemetery at dark. You should never do that. But just pretend you're there, and you get to the, the graveyard of your loved one. And all of a sudden, you see there's this mound of dirt, and there's an empty grave, and there's a casket that's been turned over. I do not care how spiritual you are. Nobody is seeing that moment and going, oh man, I'm late to the miracle. Like nobody thinks they're walking up on a miracle. They walk up and they're devastated. The women see the empty grave. They see the flipped over casket. go, oh, man, what's going on here? The body of Jesus is missing. You know, throughout history, Scholars, both Christian and non-Christian scholars, typically agree on several things about when it comes to Jesus. And so whether Christian or not, there's almost unanimous agreement about several things. Number one, everybody agrees that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person who really lived around 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. Number two, uh, most agree that his life was really significant in the very short time he had on earth, but that that significance increased radically after his death. Number three, people unanimously agree that he was crucified at the hands of the Roman Empire on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And number four, Christian and non-Christian, almost everybody unanimously agrees that on the third day after Jesus' death, something happened to the body. Now, what happened to the body is, like, widely disputed. You know, uh, there's some people that go, well, maybe the disciples stole the body, or maybe Jesus faked his death on the cross, and after they put him in the tomb, he snuck out and lived an old life and died somewhere else. Uh, There's all of these different theories and thoughts. In fact, online at ethoschurch.org forward slash blog, I posted some really um, important resources that have kind of helped me navigate through, like, the evidence that surrounds the resurrection. But people tend to agree about all of those things uh, in regards to Jesus, his life. But when it comes to what happened after his death, there's so much question and so much confusion. I love what one non-Christian uh, scholar wrote in his book called Zealot. This is from Reza Aslan. It says, the disciples faced a profound test of their faith after Jesus died. The crucifixion seemingly marked the end of their dreams, their dreams of overturning the existing systems, their dreams of rebuilding the 12 tribes of Israel and of ruling over them in God's name. It seemed as though the Roman occupation was not going to be overthrown. It seemed as if there was nothing left for Jesus' disciples to do, but to abandon the cause, to renounce their revolutionary ways, and to return to their farms and villages. But that is not what happened. Remember, this is a non-Christian writing this. He says, because on the third day, something happened. On the third day, something happened. And there's all this question, like, what happened? The women, they find themselves at the tomb, the body's gone, they're going, what happened? Like what has happened? And all of a sudden, the story continues. Luke is going to say, here's exactly what happened. Verse 4, he says, While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men, or some of the other books, say two angels, in clothes that gleamed like lightning, stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, must be crucified on the third day and raised again. And then they remembered the words of Jesus. And so there's this moment where Luke says, let me be really clear what happened and how this whole thing went down. Nobody stole the body. Jesus didn't fake his death and sneak off. He has been dead for three days. And Jesus, the Son of God, has been raised by the power of God to live forever. He says that's what's happening. Now, you've got to wrestle with the evidence and see if that's what you believe. And the women, they find themselves in this overwhelming moment. Luke ends this part of the story like this. Verse nine, when the women came back from the tomb, they told all of these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them, who told this to the apostles, but they did not believe the women. I don't know if there's anything more like a group of guys than to not believe the women, even though they have good evidence, but that's what they're doing, because we're guys, ladies, on behalf of all men. I'm sorry, but that's who we are. But listen to this, it says, because their words, listen to this, seemed like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and he ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what has happened wondering to himself what has happened. The women show up, they say, hey, Jesus is not there. The angels told us he's been risen from the dead. Over the next couple of hours, the disciples are gonna begin having these encounters with Jesus. But I want you to notice this. On the very first Easter Sunday, even Jesus's closest friends struggled to believe the significance of what was being proclaimed. Man, if you're here this morning and you're worshiping with us and you've struggled to believe, that God would come to earth and live a sinless life and die a sinner's death and be raised by the power of God on the third day, if you struggle to believe that, I'm just telling you, you are in great company. You're in great company because not only did the closest friends of Jesus struggle, I would argue any person that has stopped to really wrestle with this at some point has gone, man, man, This is tough. But here's here's what I want you to notice. Luke is putting it out there. He's saying, hey, something has changed everything. And this something, it's not metaphorical. It's not a fairy tale. Uh, I'm not just saying this haphazardly. He says there is this real moment that happened at a real place, at a real time in in human history, when a real God came to make a real way back into the family of God by the power of Jesus. He says that is what has happened, and now you get to wrestle with it. And it's really important that we understand what it is that we're talking about here on Easter. You know, years later, the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he would say it like this, if the resurrection isn't true, then our faith is useless and we are still condemned in our sins. Or he'd say it in a few verses later like this, if the resurrection didn't actually happen, if this is our only hope, this current life, he says, then we are to be most pitied of everybody. Luke is saying, hey, something happened that changed absolutely everything, and you've got to decide if this thing is going to change you. And so for just the last few minutes together, you know, all my cards on the table, I believe that, that God really came, that he really died, that he really was raised on the third day. You know, how does this begin to change us? Like right now, in the midst of the moment that we're in, just a few quick things. I think first, it begins to fundamentally change the way we think about everything that when we take in the resurrection it changes the way we think about everything. Look back at verse 6 with me. I love the angels their first words to the women in the empty tomb. They say, "Don't you remember how he told you? Don't you remember he like he called his shot on this. Jesus said this is going to happen." You know, those of you that are sports fans and you think about that moment where Babe Ruth you know, was talking trash to the pitcher, pitcher, and he said, hey, I'm hitting the next pitch over the wall. And the pitcher threw it, and he hit the next ball over the fence. And everyone goes, whoa, how did he call his shot? This is like the ultimate shot-calling moment in human history. Jesus, when he was marching into Jerusalem, he said, they're going to arrest me. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be dead for three days, but then God is going to raise me back to, from the dead. And I love this. When you begin to take this in, man, it begins to radically transform the way you think, because if Jesus was telling us the truth about this, what else is Jesus telling the truth about? If he was right about this, what else is Jesus right about? The the angel said, remember, remember, like, remember what he told you. This transforms the way you think. You know, sociologists, they say that we're living in a post-truth moment, You have real news and you have fake news. You have your truth and you have my truth. And it's so confusing. And Jesus stands up in the midst of all of it and he says, nope. He says, I'm not a truth. He says, I am the truth, the way, the life. Nobody comes into the Father's family except in me. And Jesus says, this is the way. And when we begin to embrace the reality that Jesus is alive, it changes the way we think. Because here's the deal. If Jesus is just another well-meaning teacher, if he's just uh, another prophet that died a noble death, then you and I have the right to pick and choose what we want to believe and what we want to let go of. But if he's the risen son of God, If he is the risen Son of God, then everything in life has to be understood and wrestled through the lens of what he's proclaimed. And so his commands and his promises, they they have this new weight. The resurrection, it begins to change the way we think. But it doesn't just change the way we think. It transforms the way that we feel. I love you see this in all the gospel accounts right after Jesus is risen from the dead. He starts encountering his disciples. I love what his friend John is going to tell us about that day, John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. I want you to just notice the way that the disciples, they have a change of heart as they're in the presence of the risen Lord. It says, on the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked. It's kind of like you celebrating Easter at home right now. <laughs> like, they're there. It says, with fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them, and he says, peace be with you. And he said, after he had said this, he showed them his hands and his sides, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. I want you to notice this. Nothing in their external circumstances had changed, but the risen Lord shows up, and all of a sudden, their, their emotional temperature begins to shift. Something happens. Jesus shows up. They were scared. They were terrified, and he's among them. He says, peace be with you. Joy be with you. I've talked about this before at Ethos, if you've been with us for any amount of time, but there is a big difference between worldly peace and resurrection peace. See, worldly peace is built on the absence of something. It's built on the absence of some bad things. You know, if you want worldly peace, it means you have to have the absence of war, or the absence of strife, the ab- absence of noise, the a- absence of conflict, maybe the absence of your roommates, your family, or whoever it is that drives you crazy. Like, worldly peace is built upon the absence of something, but resurrection peace is not about the absence of something. It's about the presence of someone. And I want you to notice Jesus, the risen Lord, He shows up, and all of a sudden, everything begins to shift for them the circumstances hadn't changed, but their ability to face them was radically different because of the peace and the joy that was beginning to fill their lives. Guys, we live in a moment right now where where the world is shaking, fearful of death, fearful of getting sick, fearful of what's happening in the economy. And as followers of Jesus, as we stand with the risen Jesus, we have the ability to see the pain and the suffering, to engage the grief, but to do it from a place of resurrection hope and resurrection life it changes the way we think it changes the way we feel the resurrection changes the way we live i love this if you keep reading in john chapter 20 look at verse 21 It says again jesus said to them peace be with you as the father has sent me so i am sending you 40 days later jesus is going to be hanging out with his disciples right before he physically returns to heaven And he's going to remind them, he says, hey, remember, I rose from the dead, so now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and now I get to call the shots in your life. I'm not just your cheerleader or your therapist or your coach. I'm your Savior, and I'm your leader. I'm your Lord. I'm I'm calling you into more. I'm leading you into this. And here's what I love is, is the resurrection of Jesus, it begins to clarify. It gives clarity to us when it comes to how we live our lives right here and now. As followers of Jesus, we don't believe that the goal of our life is to arrive safely at death. Like, that's not the goal. We believe, as followers of Jesus, because of the resurrection, that that death is no longer the end game. And so we get to live with boldness and courage and life and beauty and hope right here and right now. It's like the interview we saw with with our friend from Ethos Brett in the cookery earlier. It's an amazing story. I go, how could anyone have that courage when, when your business is going down to live with such an othered, and others-focused way of living. I go, it happens when you know the risen Lord. See, it changes the way that we live right here and right now. It gives us courage. It gives us boldness. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we feel. And last but not least, the resurrection changes the way we face the future. It changes the way we face the future. God's. I think sometimes unintentionally, especially in American Christianity, Easter gets reduced to this almost like— um, It's almost like this emotional nonsense where we just spout out a bunch of things. Oh, hope wins, light over darkness, everything's going to be better. That's not the message of Easter. The message of Easter is that Jesus Christ, the only perfectly good man that has ever lived, endured the worst atrocities that could ever happen to a human being, and in the midst of it, took on the punishment that humanity deserved for their sins, took them on himself. Jesus followed the end of the road all, of to, all the way to its scariest conclusion, and he didn't just die there. He died there, and by the power of God, he overcame. And what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us is that anybody that is in Christ, that will be your fate as well. On the other side of this, that Jesus will raise you up, that he's the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, one day you will be raised back to life by the power of God, and when we begin to think and really take in the significance of Easter Sunday, it doesn't just change our thinking or our feeling or the way that we live, it fundamentally changes the way we face the future. As followers of Jesus, we should be the least scared people on planet Earth right now. We should be the only ones who have the ability to grieve the sorrow and yet not be scared of death. Because we go, death is not the end. Death is not the end of the story. It wasn't the end of the story for Jesus. It's not the end of the story for us. And when the resurrection, truth, and reality really comes all the way in to the human heart, man, it changes the way we think about our own mortality. It changes the way we think about the way we'll stand before God one day. It changes the way we think about Jesus returning because we go, man, something has shifted. And I agree with the man that I had the phone call with earlier this week. We are in a moment that is changing everything. This morning, Easter Sunday, as we're breaking the bread, as we're taking the cup, as we're opening the scriptures, as we're taking our eyes off of the crisis and fixing our eyes on Jesus, we are indeed standing in the moment that has changed everything. My question is, has this moment changed you? Has it changed you? I'm not just asking if you intellectually affirm that maybe 2,000 years ago something happened. I'm asking, has your friendship and submission to the risen Lord, is it changing you? You know, there's some of you, this morning, and you're watching, and you're not followers of Jesus, and I just want you to know, God loves you so much. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, he has done everything that needs to be done on the cross and in the empty tomb so that you can enter into the family of God right here and right now, and so that you can be ready for him to return one day so you can meet him face to face. Guys, what a gift. Don't let this Easter Sunday go by. Don't waste this crisis. Don't miss this moment of what God's doing. I wanna challenge you, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, all of us this week, to do, do just a couple of things. First, man, take some time to really search out the empty tomb for yourself. Do what the disciples did. Go and investigate. Wrestle with these claims. You know, Check out those resources that I posted online. You're doing yourself a big disservice if you spend your whole life living off the breadcrumbs of somebody else's faith. Because when the world begins to shake, you can't live off of somebody else's faith. You need your own. And I want to to encourage you, man, search this out. But don't just search it out. As you search it out, sit in the weight of these implications. Like, what does it mean that God had to come and die for you? Like, what does that mean? What does that tell you about you? What does that tell you about him? What does that tell you about your neighbors, and your friends, and your coworkers? Sit in the weight of these implications. But don't just search this out, and don't just sit in it. Whether you're a Christian or not, I want to invite you to keep surrendering yourself to the significance of this truth. If you don't know how to begin following Jesus, or maybe you're stuck in your faith and you don't know how to surrender your life to Christ, man, reach out to us online, shoot us an email. I'd love to have a phone call with you today or tomorrow to walk you through what it looks like to grow in your relationship with Jesus, because we believe that something has changed everything. And because of that, man, we have great hope in the midst of the moment we're in. And so wherever you are right now, if you're by yourself or with a group of people, I want invite you to repeat these words after me. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Come on, say it again, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me pray over you. Father, I love you. And I just acknowledge I I have no grasp of how deep your love is for me or for these people that are worshiping with us this morning. But God, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you pour out your love on us in every living room, in every place that we're worshiping this morning. Pour out your love into our hearts and help us to grasp how wide and how long and how deep is the love of God for us. God, I pray that this will not just be an Easter where we celebrate sentimentally that something happened. God, may it be the Easter where we encounter the risen Lord. May you meet us in our doubts, in our fears, in our sadness, in our joy. Wherever we are, meet us in those places, Lord, and bring us to yourself. In the name of Jesus, amen.